Grace Bible Church. Welcome back to the Midweek Podcast. Uh, we're grateful that you're here with us. Uh, Brent and I welcome you with the dearest of greetings. Open arms <laughs> right here. Uh, thanks for, for tuning in. We're uh, excited to be able to talk a little bit about what happened last Sunday and what we're looking forward to this Sunday and got a little bit of a, of a different uh, podcast for you today. And we're going to take a look at uh, a document here that we'd like to share with you. So Brent, why don't you just maybe lead us into that? What did we talk about last Sunday and what are we going to be talking about today? Sure. So we worked through the first three verses of Second Peter chapter 3. And we noted that the church is the most healthiest. And one of the components of that we got into verse 3 was the, the trustworthiness of God's Word, that God's Word has been faithfully preserved. Uh, it is reliable. It is by nature. Scripture is it is God's Word. It is uniquely breathed out by God and is a final authority for us. So as a church, we speak about these things on a regular basis, that we're people devoted to the Word of God. But there are also become seasons in every generation where you have to re-clarify, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Uh, and there was a document in 1978, it's a, it's a very well-known statement, uh, called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And a number of scholars at that time, really a year or two before that, started this process because what was taking place in the culture is a lot of uh, seminaries and a lot of churches, a lot of denominations found themselves kind of moving the goalposts of what does it mean that the Bible, uh, the uniqueness of Scripture, mm -hmm. uh, what does it mean by uh, what kind of authority and role does this play in our life? And as those goalposts moved, so too did those institutions and the consequences of how we view God's Word, as we know, it bleeds into every part of our life. Right. And what these uh, these various signers and drafters of this day, document, uh, James Boyce, W.A. Criswell, uh, D.J. Kennedy, uh, J.I. Packer, John MacArthur, several others uh, worked uh, uh, to be able to put together was a clarifying statement of what do we mean when we say that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God? And with that, what do we not mean by that. So uh, there's 19 different articles that explain, and, and each of them is about a sentence apiece of affirmations and denials. And so, so part of this is what I want to do is I read Article 10 on Sunday, but I think it's worth our time to slow down and to read it when we say, what do we mean when we say the Bible is the inerrant Word of God? Mm -hmm. And we'll actually see some of these when we have our new member class. Our new member class will be this Sunday at nine o'clock in Henderson Hall. You can still sign up for that. But part of what we go through with each of our uh, members is clarifying uh, how we view the authority of Scripture. Because as we'll see when we get down to, uh, to Article 19, a Scripture is, is not a, a salvation issue, you know, so, but it is, it is an issue that we call a, a mortar issue. Mm -hmm. It holds up the brick wall of the Christian faith. There's going to be massive consequences that will happen to somebody, uh, not only in their faith, but in the trajectory of their life, if they do not hold Scripture as their final authority. Um, and so that, that's really what I want to take a little bit to be able to walk through this. So this may be new for a lot of our people, uh, I would presume, uh, old for some of our people. But a great reminder, because every single generation has to, as they say, refight this battle of biblical inerrancy. What does this mean? What does it not mean? And so when, when you hear, though, when you hear us say, as we read through this out uh, together, that we deny these statements. So every one of these articles has affirmations and denials. The denials are not negative. They're clarifying. Mm -hmm. And as you know, Stephen, that's one of the hardest parts of preaching, uh, or anybody that teaches to any group of people is whenever you say something immediately can come into somebody's mind of, Hey, wh wh what about this? You know? And so the denials are really important 
to be able to to clarify, okay, this is what we don't mean by this, or, right. or, or this is something that may be a counter to that, a, a loophole that you may be creating that denies that the, the next kind of logical loophole that one could could come up with. So yeah. I'm really excited to dive into this together, uh, read through <laughs> them, and uh, and so Stephen, if you want to read our first the article one of these of these 19, and uh, so wherever you're at, you're welcome to pull this document up. If you just search the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, there's also a Chicago Statement on Hermeneutics, which is the interpretation, the science of interpretation of Scripture uh, or of interpretation in general. Uh, but we're just going to look at the, the Biblical Inerrancy document. So you can pull that up. You don't have to, though. You can just uh, sit back, relax. Listen to the sultry voice. <laughs> that's no. right. That's right. No. Uh, okay, so take it away for us, Article 1. All right, Article 1. We affirm that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as the authoritative Word of God. We deny that the Scriptures receive their authority from the church, tradition, or any other human source. So Article 1 deals in, in part with, uh, and if we have people that come from a Roman Catholic background, this one really strikes a chord. Right. Uh, because what we're saying is uh, that the Scriptures themselves are uniquely the authoritative Word of God. They, by their own very nature, are in a unique category. So all that man can do is receive the authoritative word. No, yeah. no man, no church, no denomination uh, can make it the word of God. So there's not some guys in a, in a room that said, hey, these, these 66 books, uh, this now is scripture. We're going to use this as some, some measure by which we're going to judge everybody else. Man can only recognize what God has breathed forth. Mm -hmm. And just as Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, they know me and they follow me. That's what we see in the outward attestation of the people of God. They hear God's word. They, the spirit nourishes us, as we'll see in a little bit. But scripture uniquely are to be received as the authoritative word of God. So the Bible isn't authoritative because some church or somebody says so. Uh, it's authoritative by nature. It is self-attesting, mm -hmm. as we would say, by the very nature of scripture. Okay, article two. We affirm that the scriptures are the supreme written norm by which God binds the conscience and that the authority of the church is subordinate to that of scripture. We deny that church creeds, councils, or declarations have authority greater than or equal to the authority of the Bible. So this is a statement. When, uh, when we have members join our church, there's seven key essential statements that they affirm. That they're, they're key issues uh, you know, that we believe well summarize Scripture. Each of them is littered with Scripture citations. Uh, but, <clears throat> but what we're saying here is we learn from creeds. We learn from councils. We can learn from these, but they aren't the final authority. They don't right. take that place. So even this statement is used as a measure and a tool and a, and a healthy summary of what we believe Scripture teaches about, about its very nature. So some may, may contest and say, hey, look, this word inerrancy, man, it's only been around for a couple hundred years. So these people made this up and put it on it. We would say, well, not at all. This is actually, not only do we see it in uh, you know, some of the, the church fathers, people that live within a few hundred years, but when we look at Scripture itself, these are the things that Scripture presents of itself. This is how, when Peter, as we talked on Sunday, this is how he views Scripture and the church views Scripture. This is by nature... Uh, what we have taking place there. So so though we benefit from the teachings and others, we all have understanding the Trinity better from different creeds and things like that, uh, without question, uh, those things are all under the authority of Scripture. So Scripture is the bedrock. God's Word is the bedrock. Yeah. And it says that that's what binds the conscience. And so any yeah. of these creeds and things that we have should be um, reviewed through the lens mm. of Scripture itself. Yeah, that's right. 
So Article 3, we affirm that the written word in its entirety is revelation given by God. We deny that the Bible is merely a witness to revelation or only becomes revelation in in encounter or depends on the responses of men for its validity. So there's not some extra thing that happens in somebody's life that makes scripture of extra importance. Right. Uh, that's an important one to catch. In our culture today, that's very experiential. You know, now, now don't get me wrong. When we even have our corporate worship services, we want people to come with a humble spirit, repentant, when, uh, you know, as you or, or, or the person that day that's giving the call to worship, there's a clear entering into what we're doing, that, yeah. that, that the corporate worship itself nourishes us as believers, builds our faith uh, in a unique way. That, da- that doesn't happen of me listening to the radio in my car, singing along. There's mm-hmm. something unique that happens at the gathering of the body. But uh, what we want to understand here is uh, that we affirm that the written word in its entirety is revelation given by God. So God can speak uh, by his word, whether we're going through Second Peter, whether we're going through the book of Jonah, whether we're going through Exodus, The nature of Scripture is what is nourishing to us uh, as believers. Uh, So not simply some, I got goosebumps after that, or, you know, oh, Brent said this, and I just felt, ooh. It's not that point after the response that makes the word authoritative. It's authoritative by nature, regardless of, and I'm not condemning those feelings that may come with that, uh, uh, but it's not the feeling that comes after that, that makes it so. Not your liver shivers. Not the liver shiver. I don't even know what quite what that is, but I'm going to go with you on this one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Article 4, uh, we affirm that God who made mankind in his image has used language as a means of revelation. We deny that human language is so limited by our creature creatureliness that it is rendered inadequate as a vehicle for divine revelation. We further deny that the corruption of human culture and language through sin has thwarted God's work of inspiration. So how do we see some denominations uh, that have shifted a long ways from a healthy view of Scripture? Uh, they might even begin to sound like unbelievers, and that they're the idea of, well, you really can't trust the Bible because it's been translated and retranslated. And they'll even buy into some of these myths that as though uh, there's not a, this massive wealth of manuscript evidence that we're able to look back. So the Bible's not, if you're not familiar, the Bible wasn't translated from the New Testament, which is written almost entirely in Greek, uh, Koine Greek. It didn't go from Greek and then translated to Latin and then translated to uh, you know, Arabic, and then translated into uh, finally English. Uh, they these uh, textual critics go back and they and they give their lives to understand the languages, uh, and then they look at the manuscripts and have a very strong idea of okay. So it's not the telephone game; it's it's right. going back and looking at the source that's able to be uh, this this body, I should say, of of uh, of manuscripts to be able to look at and to understand. So we affirm that that God who made mankind in his image has used language. So God is a communicative God. He communicates to us that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit communicates. God is the Word, you know, the, the Son uh, communicates to us. So he does communicate. And, that's, and the Word of God is how we receive this clear understanding of who God is. All right, Article 5. We affirm that God's revelation in the Holy Scriptures was progressive, We deny that later revelation, which may fulfill earlier revelation, ever corrects or contradicts it. We further deny that any normative revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament writings. Good. So there's a, we see this in in several denominations. Um, There's a denomination, uh, a church in Kansas City that's 
<clears throat> that has really a lot of influence over the the area. Uh, several thousand people attend it, um, and they did a series not long ago that was presenting the scriptures contradictions mm. uh, as contradictions, not as these things that can be harmonized, uh, but as just saying, "Hey, look, Bible contradicts itself. Here's how we handle that." Not mm. to harmonize it, but to, to just say, "Oh, it's just." got contradictions in it. Some of it's kind of expired. Maybe it doesn't have an accurate understanding of sexuality like we do today. Mm. Uh, And uh, these are, so we see that example of how that bleeds into the entire life of a a church in a very dangerous, foolish way. And so what we're saying here is the New Testament, of course, comes later. We see different ways of fulfillment that that Christ played and also uh, the second coming that's going to play. So when they were looking forward to Christ's coming, they they had trouble discerning these things he was going to do at his first coming, these things as judge he's going to do at his second coming, um, and how that impacted the people of God. So that's what this is saying. Scripture has been progressively given, uh, but Scripture has been given. <laughs> you know, there's not right. going to be... So beware of the latter-day saints, right? Those people are going to come claim some later uh, authoritative Scripture uh, that's going to come along later from the Bible itself. Article 6. We affirm that the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. We deny that the inspiration of Scripture can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts, or of some parts, but not the whole. Okay, so uh, the Scriptures themselves have been revealed by God. Uh, and that scripture by nature is authoritative. Every component is God breathed. And we talked about this Sunday a little bit with uh, the idea of maybe some that say, I like the words of Jesus, uh, but I really struggle with some of the things that Peter says. Mm. And they try to pit it up against its, itself. You can't, you can't do that by nature, right? The Holy Spirit moved uh, among these men. And we'll see in a little bit, what did that look like? Uh, later articles will we'll explain here in just a few moments that they have their own style. They're not... They're not like their eyes aren't rolling back in the back of their head. You know, as Peter's writing Second Peter, his eyes didn't roll back in the back of his head. Then all of a sudden, his hand just starts writing, yeah. uh, and then it just comes out uh, like he's a pen. It's got its own flavor. Uh, uh, it's got the, the authors are writing what they intend. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, and it's all authoritative. It's all God breathed. Yeah. Okay, Article Seven. We affirm that inspiration was the work in which God, by His Spirit, through human writers, gave us His Word. The origin of Scripture is divine. The mode of divine inspiration remains largely a mystery to us. We deny that inspiration can be reduced to human insight or to heightened states of consciousness of any kind. Yeah, and that's really tying, I guess I kind of bled into that a little bit. Uh, so there's some dictation components. We, when we look at Scripture itself, we do see some of those. Mm-hmm. So in Exodus 20, we see the giving of the Ten Commandments. We, that's a clear component of God dictating, you know, thus says the Lord. There yeah. is dictation components in Scripture. But much of it is these 40 different authors that have, uh, that have their own personalities, their own education, their own training, and yet the Holy Spirit is leading them. Uh, is, uh, and, and, and I appreciate the honesty of this to be able to clarify and say... Uh, uh, you know, hey, we deny that the inspiration of Scripture can, can rightly be affirmed in the whole... Or that was a previous one, wasn't it? Uh, that this idea that we know exactly how all these components worked, exactly how the Holy Spirit worked in, uh, in yeah. that. But we know that He did work in that. Um, so, yeah, that's helpful. Very, yeah. very close to the previous that, one. That it r- remains largely a mystery is what it says. And so, yeah, obviously... We're not going to be able to work out all the outworkings of how that works, but we trust that that's the way that it was done. Uh, Article 8. 
We affirm that God in his work of inspiration utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he had chosen and prepared. We deny that God, in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose, overrode their personalities. So that's essentially what we what we just touched on. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, so a lot of these bleed into each other. Yeah, uh, Meaning, so if you, you know, as we learn, even not having to learn the languages, as we look at English and good translations, you can see each, uh, each author has got their own kind of little style. But they can also bend their style to the audience that they're writing to. Just like we speak differently right now to each other than we do to our wife. We speak differently uh, to our wives than we do to our kids. Yeah. And that's okay. And so, but each author has their own little, uh, their own little favorite style. So there's a reason that as people are learning the languages, uh, their favorite New Testament books, they'll start off, they'll go to first John, second John, third John, and then they'll go to the gospel of John. Uh, they'll go to the, Thess- the Thessalonians books are a little easier grammar, but John has his own style. So in the gospel of John, he uses synonyms all over the place. He mm-hmm. uses them constantly. Uh, so he, you know, whereas, uh, Matthew does not. So they each have their own little styles. It's their, it's who they are. They didn't become somebody else when they wrote, but God worked through that process just as he did in preserving scripture through this massive manuscript tradition, yeah. uh, without the autographs. All right. Article nine, we affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the biblical authors were moved to speak and write. We deny that the finitude, mm-hmm. finitude, 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 tomato, tomato, <laughs> or fallenness of these writers by necessity or otherwise introduced distortion or falsehood into God's word. So this is telling us that they didn't have to be, you didn't have to have a perfect, a perfect uh, knife, you know, yeah. uh, it's the Holy Spirit that's working through there. So some people might point out, well, does this mean that the apostles were inerrant in everything they did and said? Well, no, of course not. But what took place in the writing of scripture itself, that was God breathed, that was authoritative. Uh, so it's not like, and it's kind of a weird thought, but it's not like Peter never sinned again the rest of his ministry, the next several decades he lived. Yes, he still had sin. We know he did as in his interaction with Paul. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but what was given in Scripture itself, God guarded and protected and breathed forth his word for us. Article 10. We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of scriptures are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. We further deny that this absence renders the the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. Yeah, so this is looking at the transmission of Scripture. So there's the the inspiration of Scripture. There's the giving. So we have the autographs, the original, what would have been the 66 books, uh, even though the Old Testament, you know, they had some boiled down a little smaller. So if you look at a, uh, what they would say, oh, the Hebrews, uh, the Jews had this many books. When you look at the uh, the English, we have more books. Well, that's just because we made them two books, <laughs> several right. of them made yeah. them longer. It's the same content. There's no, uh, there's no additional content in our, in our Bible Bibles as Protestants than what the Hebrews had in the old Testament. Uh, but what we have here is a, a clarifying statement, uh, that scripture itself, uh, God has spoken in the autographs. Now the problem becomes we don't have the autographs just like we're not going to have anything we own probably 2000 years from now either, or 3000 hmm. years from now. But what we have is such a wealth in this science of textual criticism and the preservation of scripture. There is so much data spread out through so much of an area that we can look back and say, Hey, with 99.5% certainty that 
we can get to what the autograph said. Mm. And that's a great thing. So I want you to imagine that we did have the autographs, because usually when people find this out, that we don't have the original Second Peter in some vault somewhere, uh, it can be discouraging. Like, oh, no, well, what happened? Well, the way that God preserved it, it was to be copied with incredible detail, incredible skill, and then and then passed on to another congregation. They did as well. Well, what happened? As, as throughout history, as some came along trying to destroy them, they couldn't destroy them all. Mm. Or if you had a scribe that tried to harmonize, you know, so with the Gospels, we see this a lot. A scribe will try to harmonize uh, this little spot with the, the, the same scene that's in, in, you know, Mark with Luke. And he'll add a little word here to try to harmonize the two. Well, that's not how the Gospels were given. They each have their own unique little perspective. Same story, mm. different scenes uh, or different at camera angles. And, uh, and so what happens though, is we know historically, as we look at that manuscript, oh, this scribe over here did this around the fifth century, because that's not in any of the previous ones. Mm. This is a helpful thing for us to be able to look at how God's preserved his word. So it is, long story short, it is trustworthy. Uh, so when people try to tell you, oh, you can't trust the Bible because it's, it was written by men or it's been so many thousands of years, that shows their complete ignorance of how scripture has been preserved. Even the biggest skeptics to the Bible, a guy named Bart Ehrman, in, in a debate, came along and said, uh, in a debate with Dr. James White, came along and said, hey, uh, you know, he, he's an incredible textual scholar. Guy knows the languages, one of the, one of the greatest minds in that way, but he's an unbeliever. Hmm. But why is he not a believer? He's not a believer because he has a problem with evil, the problem of evil in the world. It's not because the Bible's not trustworthy. Mm. So he uses a lot of these different sayings of people that never heard of, of how scriptures, you know, he'll say there's more errors in the Bible than there is actual words. And they'll hear this, what in the world? Well, you've got 6,000 plus Greek manuscripts, man. That's not even counting the 24,000 if you include the other other languages and, and how it's been preserved. So each of those variants, they could they he calls them an error. And it's, it's just, it's, it's real word manipulation. Yeah. Uh, but in, in that debate, there's a debate in, in Dr. James White, I won't go into too much detail, but the big story short is he said, listen, if you were to compare a King James version with a, an NIV, uh, is that distinction bigger than if you took every little textual variant, every little spot uh, that could be different? Uh, and he said, yeah, actually it is. So meaning... We've all been in a Bible study with somebody that had a King James and somebody that had an ESV, somebody that had a New American. I know my small group that I love, a lot of people got different translations, but here's the deal. You're never so lost that you're like, what book are you? You know, it's the, <laughs> yeah. you get the idea. Right. Uh, and that's how faithfully the Bible has been uh, uh, transmitted through the centuries. It is worth, it is trustworthy. We can trust it as the word of God that's been preserved. Amen. Article 11, we affirm that scripture having been given by divine inspiration is infallible, so that, far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. We deny that it is possible for the Bible to be at the same time infallible and errant in its assertions. Infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished but not separated. So when we say, hey, why is this existing here? I'll give a little background on uh, the time in history when this document was given. So uh, in the same way, and I want to say this first, 200 years from now, if they look back at this season, 2020, you know, the late 20 teens, they will look at history and say, wow, the Christians, Protestant Christians really produced a lot of writing on biblical sexuality uh, and marriage. Mm -hmm. And if you were to ask, well, I wonder why they did that. What's the answer? Because the culture uh, and, and even those then that I would say are, are more wolves uh, that carry the name of Christ, uh, 
that attack the biblical teaching of, of, of biblical marriage and gender and sexuality, uh, they've produced these, these massive statements and claims. And so Christians then have rallied and produced rebuttals to those. So when we look at church history, whether it's a period of clarifying the Trinity or the nature of Christ, or now in this in, in 2020, uh, a clear understanding of gender and sexuality. Uh, that's what we saw in the late 70s. So this word here, uh, these two distinctions, these two words that we see here, uh, uh, between infallibility and inerrancy, uh, a lot of professors and others at Fuller Seminary and others didn't like this word inspiration. It became a, or in, infallibility mm-hmm. uh, or inerrancy. And so they made the word the idea of infallible. So they, they subbed the word in for infallible for inerrancy to try to be able to, to say, hey, it's an accurate recording of God's word. The problem is, as these, uh, as the, the the signers of this document, and the writers of this document did, is you can't you can't have one without the other. Yeah. Uh, an inerrant God, a God who <clears throat> cannot err, is what that means. Uh, he cannot err in his speaking, uh, and uh, and just the same God who created all things out of nothing has no problem even speaking to sinners uh, and giving forth His word and preserving His word in the incredible way that He's chosen to do through, so through a massive wealth of a families of manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what they're saying. They're cutting off uh, the enemy at the gates. <laughs> they're saying, no, 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 you can't take the word infallibility to saying it cannot err. Uh, uh, you know, it's infallible in its nature uh, with inerrancy that it cannot err. So mm-hmm. it's, it's the two go together is what yeah. they're saying. All right, Article 12, we affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, and or deceit. We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and, and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of scripture on creation and the flood. So this is telling us that all the things that scripture does speak to, they're, they're inerrant. And anything that scripture speaks to, here's the key, rightly understood that science, scientists or philosophies, uh, Freud or others disagree with, scripture is correct and those things are false. That doesn't mean that there might be a misunderstanding of an interpretation. So historically, if some looked at Scripture and thought, well, the, the world revolves around, or, you know, the, the, the universe revolves around, the, the plans revolve around the earth, we know that's wrong. That was a misunderstanding of a text that didn't even claim that. Uh, so when we see, oh, we rotate around the sun, uh, it's a sun-centered universe, that, that doesn't show the Scripture is wrong. That shows that there was a clear misinterpretation of those Scriptures. So all things that Scripture speak to uh, in entirety, they are inerrant, free from falsehood and deceit, just as the infallible God has sufficiently inspired Scripture, this inerrant word for us. That's what that's talking about. All right, Article 13. We affirm the the propriety of using inerrancy as a theological term with reference to the complete truthfulness of Scripture. We deny that it is proper to evaluate Scripture according to standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage or purpose. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena such as a lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, variant selections of material and parallel accounts, or the use of free citations. 
Okay, it sounds like <laughs> you read the, it's like you intercepted a text message. And you're like, <laughs> what was going on here? Well, here's how the game was played a little bit uh, 40 years ago and still today. They would look at certain things that were clear estimates. Uh, so when we look at old, the Old Testament and we see some of the censuses that are taken, and we see a variation of numbers, even the manuscripts that are taken. Well, some are, some are estimates, meaning Scripture has the freedom to speak with generalities when it speaks with generalities, mm-hmm. uh, also with spellings. And so uh, we're, we're very precise in spellings, but we have a different way of spelling than they're the, you know, the, the British do of various words. You know, S-A-V-I-O-U-R, Savior. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a freedom of that. And that generation, that culture had a different way of being able to spell certain things in different regions, just like we do today. I don't know if people have noticed, but people in Texas... Uh, East Texas speak a little bit differently than some people on the other side of the country. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I know. Now, 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 they would tell us that this is the correct way to speak, <laughs> That's without right. question. But, but it's it's saying Scripture has the freedom to be able to to speak, you know, using hyperbole in different ways. Whether it's a an example of when Jesus says, you know, to pluck your eye out or the inner. Well, he's not saying he's using hyperbole. He's not saying go pluck your eyeballs out. You know. Yeah. Uh, what a tragedy that would be. So, or forgive uh, 70 times 7. Right. And so what they're trying to do, though, why, where this comes in is they would look and say, look, look at some of these areas. This cannot be. Therefore, Scripture must be wrong on talking about uh, gender norms or, uh, or, you know, or, or, or roles of ministry in the context of the church. Uh, of leadership, so so that's that's how the game was played. Yeah. So this is them getting ahead of it to, to deal with a lot of the arguments that are used of people that are against inerrancy. Good. Article fourteen: We affirm the unity and internal consistency of Scripture. We deny that alleged errors and discrepancies that have not yet been resolved. What's this word? Evidiate. Vidiate. All right. The truth claims of the Bible. Yeah. So it'd be neutralizing it. So meaning uh, scripture can be harmonized. And and some things we look at and say, hey, this is just hard to be able to get our mind around. But that does not mean that the, the issue is with the interpreter, not with the nature of scripture itself. Right. All right. Article 15. We affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the teaching of the Bible about inspiration. We deny that Jesus' teaching about scripture may be dismissed by appeals to accommodation or to any natural limitation of his humanity. All right. So this is saying that this is, when you look at how does Jesus view God's word? So when Jesus says it is written, you know, when he in Matthew 18 reaffirms, he's, God has made them husband and male and female. That's, look at how Jesus views scripture. Mm. Have you not read? <laughs> scripture is by nature. Jesus certainly views it as the inspired, authoritative, God-breathed word. Yeah. And so do the rest of the writers. So when we finish Second Peter here uh, next week or two, uh, we're going to see he refers to Paul's writings as scriptures. Mm. That You look at scripture itself, it views itself as authoritative. Inerrancy is not some hammer brought along later on, invented to try to control people. When you look at scripture itself, it views itself in this word. Don't use the word inerrancy. English wasn't around back then, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the very what we're trying to describe, what this document is trying to describe as inerrancy is how the scripture views itself as the final authoritative word. Mm-hmm. Article 16, we affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy has been integral to the church's faith throughout its history. We deny that inerrancy is a doctrine invented by scholastic Protestantism, or as a reactionary position postulated in response to negative higher criticism. Okay, so again, that was one of the arguments that was made, was this, uh, even though this this statement is used when they talk about fundamentals, the fundamentals of the faith, say by grace alone through faith in, in Christ, 
uh, the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, the, 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 the literal return, bodily return of Christ, these fundamentals of the Christian faith and the inerrancy of Scripture being one of those fundamentals. And part of the attacks then were saying, oh, this is a man-made document. No, no, no. So very similar to the previous idea. This is even how, even though uh, you know, the Scripture cannot err, uh, Luther said, and also uh, your church fathers well before, giving the same very idea, the very authority in Scripture. So they're, they're cutting that off by saying, yeah, the word has come along later, just like the word Trinity in English it came along later. But when you look at Scripture, very clearly one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's a biblical teaching summarized in that word. That's yeah. what inerrancy is. All right, Article 17. We affirm that the Holy Spirit bears witness to the Scriptures, assuring believers of the truthfulness of God's written Word. We deny that this witness of the Holy Spirit operates in isolation from or against Scripture. Yeah. So we affirm that the Holy Spirit bears witness to the Scripture. Uh, it's, it's the very nature of Scripture that makes it so. It's the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, flavors, but it, it's the Lord that's inspired this Word. Hmm. All right, Article 18. We affirm that the text of the scripture of scripture is to be interpreted by grammatico-historical exegesis, taken, <clears throat> taking account of its literary forms and devices, and that scripture is to interpret scripture. We deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text or quest for sources lying behind it that leads to uh, relativizing the historical okay. De, dehistoricalizing, I think, or uh, discounting its teaching or rejecting its claims to authorship. This is a challenge you put me up to, to read in front of a bunch of people. I actually just included some <laughs> fake words in here for you. Uh, so the idea is that, so we think about the way we, a lot of big words, given the idea, the way we naturally interpret things in an honorable way, in context, allow the document to speak for itself. Mm-hmm. So when it says grammatical, grammatico-historical, meaning it, you, we look at the grammar, we can understand the grammar, so we can understand it. Sure, we bring some biases to the text. Everybody does. Yeah. But we look at the grammar, and we can understand the grammar. Uh, and we can look at the historical setting that there is. Uh, and then we can interpret it. Exegesis, we can interpret what it's saying. And, of course, we, we understand who Christ is. We understand the working of the Spirit. We look at all the document and let Scripture speak for scripture. So we interpret scripture with scripture. So we come up with an interpretation over here in scripture that seems to go against the rest of scripture. We'd say, well, let's, is there a way to harmonize these? Is the context giving us insight? So we look at historical background information. We, we learn a lot, but not in some way that, that overrides the teaching of scripture, which is what you have when it comes to Romans 1, a text we're going to look at this Sunday a little bit of, uh, or these other texts where people will come and say, look, actually, no, that's just some cultural thing. That really isn't what that statement is. And they'll try to use uh, some extra uh, biblical background information on the culture and the time to try to make the Bible say what it's not saying. Yeah. And that's what this is This is saying. Now, we the, can't understand it. There are presuppositions we bring to the text, mm-hmm. some of those bad and some of those good. Mm-hmm. The, the good ones are the ones that are rooted in Scripture itself. And so we bring those to the text and, and, and allow, like it said, Scripture to interpret Scripture itself. Right. Yeah. Article 19, we affirm that a confession... Of the full authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole of the Christian faith. We further affirm that such confession should lead to increasing conformity to the image of Christ. We deny that such confession is necessary for salvation. However, we further deny that inerrancy can be rejected without grave consequences both to the individual and to the church. So the Word of God taken in... (laughs) 
the spirit breathed word, ought to make the people of God look more like Christ. Yes. <laughs> and we're not just getting big brains over here. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're aiming for big hearts, big hands, big lives for Christ, uh, a, a big commission to make disciples. And that last component there, that's very much what we spend time in our new members class going over, the role mm -hmm. of Scripture. And I, you can't say it much better than this. Uh, we further deny that inerrancy can be rejected without grave consequences. If you don't have, what do you build your life upon? What do you build your your purpose and your mission in life upon? Even stewarding, how do you steward your money? How do you steward your time? If God's Word is not the foundation of how we understand those things, if it's not the foundation of your marriage, you have a marriage that's going to be in trouble in a matter of time. Yeah. You have a life, you have a family, you have a goals. They're going to lead you to a place where you're going to have regrets because you're going to put them upon uh, a different foundation than what is God's word, our creator. So in short, that is our the articles, the 19 articles of the, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. That's very helpful. Uh, and folks can look that up. But man, it's a pleasure to fly through these together. <laughs> Uh, and uh, we have finished this race, and we look forward to this Sunday, Stephen. We got a family service this Sunday. We do taking uh, taking part of the Lord's Supper. We had the blessing of uh, three people being baptized. This three Sunday. baptisms Man, this Sunday. It's amazing. Uh, what a, a testimony to the faithfulness of Christ and uh, church. It'll be a rich time to worship together this Sunday. We can't wait to see you there. See you then.